This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last episode I was talking about a bunch of war films made in 1940s. They were sent up to the relatives of the soldiers who had been fighting in the Burma front. Talking about cinema, let's turn to India. What was cinema like in India in the early 20th century? How did the Indian state look at cinema during the early 20th century? Was cinema entirely a concern of commerce or did the state also have distinct point of view about the production and distribution and indeed the public influence of cinema history chatter cinema and the indian state Now cinema became immensely popular all over the world by the first quarter of the 20th century that is when and why the states woke up to its power meaning the power to mold the minds of the people at large as such cinema had to be manipulated or regulated since the states too carried out the very same business cinema was competition and it had to be made a friend cinema was understood to have the potential to transmit enlightenment education and evil in equal measure the state in india therefore resolved to control and eradicate the evil and promote enlightenment and education and Against this background they commissioned the report the cinematograph inquiry committee of 1927 and this is how the committee began its report that cinema in india had the potential to transmit education entertainment and evil in equal measure by 1927 of course cinema had already established an identity as a dispenser of the cheapest and the most popular form of entertainment it had already bitten the stage in popularity and appeal since it employed the peculiar method of heightening all expressions the state believed that the basic reason of the popularity of cinema was its larger than life projection of images in india the state assumed a paternal right as it were to speak for the public opinion by default in the belief that public opinion had not yet reached a level of sufficient maturity it confidently brushed aside public opinion as a bit of an infant yet to be taken seriously on whether or not censorship for instance was necessary censorship was deemed necessary because the public opinion had to be carefully nursed to maturity cinema came to be seen as a temptation before an adolescent public opinion as it were which if not protected might become malformed under the evil influence of cinema 
Education, of course, had a specific meaning in this discourse of control. It had little to do with formal university-based education. At best, cinema could be used as an aid to formal instruction in schools and colleges. Visuals of plants and animals could be shown, for instance, as illustrations to students. More importantly though, cinema was conceived as a means to circulate values that the state wanted its people to follow or to educate them as it were in desirable public values such as better health or hygiene practices. It was to be a means of non-formal public education. Films were to be a means of non-formal public education. It was concerned that Western films shown in India at the time ran the risk of making Indians take to alien values. Yet, on the whole, they believed, the state believed, that the Western films taught Indians about more advanced conditions of life in other countries. Thus, those films widened their horizons and their outlooks. Yet, film censorship had started in India since 1918, following the Indian Cinematograph Act. But according to a British expert, it called for some stiffening up. Ironically, the British critics who called for greater censorship were concerned primarily that too many American films were shown and these American films were showing too much sensationalism, which meant murders, crimes, and divorce. That appeared to run down Western women in Indian eyes, those films. So, censorship in India was required primarily to make Western women appear more respectable to the Indian audience. In fact, a body of concerned British citizens called the British Social Hygiene Delegation visited India in the winter of 1926-27. They were worried that American films were promoting a culture of permissiveness in India, and that allegedly led to unacceptable rise in sexually transmitted diseases, presumably among the British in India. Several Indian elites were deeply influenced by the opinion of this social hygiene delegation a point to which we will come a little later. The American films reportedly emphasized the physical dimension of sex far too much. That was harmless in the West. But in India, where basic social values were fundamentally different, they tended to produce an unhealthy consequence, or so the experts thought. They were presumably calculated to corrupt the morals of the people. Indians too were concerned uh, that young students were laid astray by their exposure to sexually explicit American fare, as it were. Bad cinema in this understanding came to be perceived as a sexually explicit fare produced exclusively in America. For instance, Yu uh, Rama Rao, a member of the Council of State, observed that, uh, quote, crimes and moral depravities of men and women in India, unquote, were partly an outcome of such cinema. Some Indians, such as Harun Jafar, 
were in addition looking for a uniform system of censorship all over the country, as opposed to separate arrangements in various provinces. On the whole, the question was how to expose a largely illiterate population to films which promoted alien values without resulting in moral, uh, moral degradation of the audience. One of the options, of course, was to impose higher customs duty to, to, to imported films and to promote more Indian films, as in films made by Indians in India. It was probably assumed that they would promote familiar values and therefore would be less likely to encourage crime or permissiveness. In addition, it would eventually lead to a national film industry. The government until then, that is around 1926, had no credible information about the scale or any other detail of the Indian film industry. And it certainly did not have any encouragement to offer. The empire suddenly woke up to the fact that there were not too many empire firms, as in films, produced in countries within the empire. The objective was now clear. The objective was to stop the American films. The American films had now to be prevented and more empire films had to be made to fill the vacuum. Some of these empire films could of course be Indian too. It is amusing indeed to see how the first major government initiative in studying films in India was haunted practically by the ghost of America. The question of censorship, meaning the restriction of American films, could no longer be managed by provisional tactics of, of correspondence between the government of India and provincial governments. It was necessary now to put together a permanent in all India policy architecture to carry out that task. New concerns would now come up. Some Indians uh, were worried that some films misrepresented the Puranas. Lala Lajpat Rai, for instance, was concerned that films abroad misrepresented Asiatics in general and Indians in particular. Yet others were anxious that Indian women who were only recently coming out of the Parda system and learning to watch films must not be exposed to unhealthy content. This is how the Indian Cinematograph Committee came to be appointed. Its primary task was to streamline the system of censoring films to be shown in India. But it had a secondary task too. It had to see how more films could be made in India. The latter, the Indian films had the potential to reduce the need for censorship eventually since they were expected to show Indian stories in an Indian setting. They would show the audience their own social conditions and their own culture so that they would obviate crimes or sexual indiscretion. Thus, at last was the assumption. That at least was the assumption. The committee was subsequently appointed by the resolution number D4169 political dated October the 6th, 1927. It started its uh, work in October 1927. 
It carried out extensive tours all over the country and spoke to over 350 witnesses. 239 among them were Indians and 114 Europeans, Anglo-Indians or Americans. 157 of these witnesses were Hindus, the rest were Muslims, 38 of them, 25 Parsis, 16 Burmese, 2 among them were Sikhs and 1 Christian, Indian Christian that is. 39 witnesses were women, including 19 Indians. The members traveled a total distance of some 9,400 miles. The committee was set up following larger international trends. Germany, Italy, France, Britain, New Zealand and Japan were explicitly mentioned in the report as already following clear-cut policies of restricting exhibition of foreign films and promoting local fare. They turned in their report by the middle of 1928. The report, which is organized into 10 chapters, extensively studied the state of the industry in India and made recommendations for its promotion. India, of course, at the time included Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar and Sri Lanka. The number of cinema theatres in India had grown dramatically in the 1920s. There were 148 in 1921 and 309 by 1927-28. Out of those, around 100 showed only imported films. Bombay, as in the presidency of Bombay, was already the leader with 77 of these cinema theatres. Delhi, incidentally, had only three. It was a small industry yet. There was a cinema theatre for nearly a million Indians. America had a total of 20,500 cinema theatres already. Britain had 3,700. And even Japan had 1,050. Besides, these were by and large cheap and unpretentious constructions, the cinema theatres. Unlike the luxuriously appointed cinema palaces in the West. The average ticket price was three annas, uh, though there would be a few luxury seats which cost uh, rupees two or three. That was nearly a hundred years ago, of course. Cinema had not yet touched the vast rural population. Residents of large cities or provincial towns alone had access to cinema. The majority of this audience probably came from the educated classes. Against this background, the committee at once dismissed the concern about exposing the illiterate rural Indians to the influence of permissive American films as a false alarm. Women too hardly attended films, except for some Hindu mythological films. Interestingly, Indian men hardly displayed any resistance against Western films. Thief of Baghdad, uh, for instance, with Douglas Fairbanks in the lead, was at the time the most popular film in India. While the anglicized Indians enjoyed all kinds of imported films, those with a lesser mastery of English preferred only comedy or action, to the exclusion of social dramas. 
Even then, the Indian audience displayed hearty applause for the hero who mercilessly beat up the villain, as um, the committee called it, the hero who dispensed summary justice. Indian mythological films, such as The Birth of Krishna, enjoyed a wide following. The appeal of historical dramas was relatively less on account of provincial differences in dress and customs. Indian films were certainly more popular, though the question of provincial idiosyncrasies came up repeatedly. It meant all India films or all Indian films did not draw equally large audiences in every part of India. Their demand was far greater than their supply, of course. Non-fiction films did not pull in large crowds. News and topical films were shown only in first-class cinemas. They were largely imported and there were extremely few Indian news or topical films. Films were limited and there were several factors which limited the market of Indian films. Uh, there were only 300 or so cinema houses all over India. And the bulk of Indians did not yet have the means to visit them regularly. Of the 300 cinema houses, 100 or so catered exclusively to the Europeans or anglicized Indians, meaning upper class Indians. And it meant that they rarely showed Indian films. Plus, only a handful of the 58 cinemas in Burma or Myanmar showed Indian films, meaning half of the cinema houses in British India would not show Indian films yet. Then there was the provincial question. These were days before the talkies, so dialogues were yet to come in. Nonetheless, quote, a film of Bengali life will appeal to the Bengali, but it would not be much appreciated by the uneducated in Madras, unquote and still less would it appeal to the Bombay side. It was not strictly a provincial question in a territorial sense, but in a cultural sense. In the South, for instance, the Deccanese or the Maratha mode of life would hold sway, the committee observed, and the Bombay films would produce that more efficiently. Likewise, Burmese films held no charm for the Indian audience and vice versa, or so it was understood. Well before talkies arrived, films would therefore be sorted as grounded in distinct cultures in terms of the clothes of their characters or backgrounds in which they were shot. Moreover, captions or subtitles were expected to be in the vernaculars. This was strange given that most in the audience could not read. Yet captions were for those who could, for they would read them aloud to those who could not. In this connection, the report made a most insightful observation. The producers often had to make films with subtitles in four or five separate vernaculars. The report uh, observed that it was inevitable since, and I quote, there is no lingua franca for all India, unquote. 
It was 1927-28. No lingua franca for India. Even during the 1920s, historical films were controversial. For instance, films upholding Maratha pride, such as Durga Das or Shivaji, would be objected to. Likewise, historically attested facts, such as a Mughal emperor drinking, could not be shown since this appeared to go against a practice the Muslims venerated as holy. Drinking was prohibited in Islam. A Mughal emperor could not be shown drinking. The report made several recommendations for improving the state of affairs, of course. It is useful to deal with two of those here. Those interested for more are advised to read the report in detail. In terms of trade, it made three recommendations and several others, but I'm outlining only three here. Financial aid to the producer, building of more cinema houses and compulsory quota for Indian firms. Culturally, it called for cultivation of national ideas. Here, the idea of the nation was strongly mediated by provincial specificities. Each province, the report said, had its own history, literature, and fairs and festivals. Much of that could be utilized by suitable handling to design a universal appeal. Now, the report had precious little to say on how to design this suitable method of handling regional material. This is a puzzle that would continue to persist over the next hundred years, even today. So the committee um, said it was necessary to remove from the Indian screen foreign grips mainly the grip of America. The cinemas unwittingly influenced the thought and outlook of the people it understood. Censorship alone, it understood, would not be sufficient unless a large enough body of Indian films were ready to offer competition to American imports. In this context, it is helpful to recall what the committee had to say on production and exhibition of what it called educational films, or what later would be called propaganda films. In fact, the committee itself um, used the word propaganda uh, later in the report. This is where the interests of the state in films um, was most directly focused on the question of educational films or propaganda films. The committee made a distinction between education in a narrower and a broader sense, a point that I alluded to earlier at the beginning of this podcast. Masses now had to be educated, meaning they had to be exposed to, quote, important subjects such as public health and hygiene, agricultural operations, cottage industries, as well as bringing before them conditions of life in other countries. In a word, use of films in making the people of this country into better, 
happier and more enlightened citizens, unquote. Films were now to be harnessed to the task of making higher quality citizens an adequate, well thought out, consistent and coordinated policy of mass education by means of films was therefore deemed the need of the hour. As a matter of fact, several educationists had appeared before the committee. They said films could be used in higher education, but they did not have the money or skill to produce films. The Cinematograph Committee recommended allocation of additional funds so that films could be made as an adjunct to existing methods of education, especially in case of scientific or technical subjects in the university as also in schools. It wanted the students to see more films of that variety, though it made no detailed roadmap. It had more to say on the issue of mass education. Countries in Europe and America were already making films on a rich variety of subjects and most of those films possessed a distinct entertainment and educative value. They were already talking about what would later be called edutainment. That sort of films was practically unobtainable in India at the time. Patel and Sons of Lahore had imported some of those and kindly showed them to the committee. The committee called for special concessions to enterprises which imported such films. The exhibition of such films did not make for huge profits. The committee therefore called for government and private contributions. It was surprised indeed that even though films were already recognized as a useful tool for propaganda elsewhere, little initiative was taken in India towards that direction. A witness, one Dr. Bentley, who had been the director of public health in Bengal, regretted that if only he had access to half a dozen films on the precautions that the people should take during a cholera epidemic, it would be a great boost to the task of fighting the menace. More importantly, such films had the potential to transcend the provincial limitations that the typical commercial feature films had to struggle against. Now, they would be of untold value for harmonizing the ideas, customs and practices all over the country. The committee called for the provinces to combine and establish and support a central cinema bureau. In other words, the Cinematograph Committee of 1927 and 28 called for setting up a national film policy and a national film institute or production center, as it were to make films which would try and devote themselves to the cause of integrating the different cultures of the provinces into an all India ethos or a nationalist ethos. The state in India in the late 20s was aware, certainly, 
that films were an extremely influential and powerful medium to mold minds in millions. It paid adequate attention, therefore, to work out a vision to, to try and harness filmmaking and exhibition to the cause of building a distinct kind of nation with a distinct kind of citizen body with investment in a particular set of visual practices which in a course of time would project India as a nation. Films um, indeed uh, also had their unique um, and let's say irresistible charm which resisted efforts by the state to regulate them. Eventually, over the next 80-90 years, Indian films would acquire a distinct kind of brand value. Some of the concerns that these early commentators had, had uh, displayed with regard to the making and exhibition of Indian films the question of morality, the question of their appeal to the popular uninitiated audience would continue to persist. It would be useful to examine contemporary concerns about the making, exhibition and circulation and reception of Indian films in view of uh, these early observations by a bunch of uh, concerned Indian and British uh, citizens and observers in the early 20th century. Now that, of course, brings an end to this episode of History Chatter. I would like to hear from you as soon as possible. Please tell us what you liked about the previous episodes. What is it that you want included in the next episode? Till then, Please subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website, GeoSavan, Spotify and Apple Podcast and a number of your favorite podcast streaming apps. Till then, looking forward to the next episode. This is your friend Donirban signing off. History Chatter. Goodbye.